0: Hello everybody, my name is Eric Mercier, I am co-owner of Juice Imports, and uh, today I'm going to walk you through the May edition of our Natural Wine Club. Uh, today we decided to do something a little bit different, usually we have a guest with us, um, but we've been having some requests to go over some wine basics. So. Instead of focusing primarily on the wines that we have in the wine club today, we're gonna talk a little bit about how those wines are made, discuss some key concepts, some things that we use in the write-up all the time, um, and define those things and make it a little bit easier on on everybody. Um, So the first thing that we'll talk about is uh, Laurent Sayard's Lucky You. Uh, This wine is coming from the Loire Valley in France. Uh, This region is really famous for making um, really pristine styles of white wine, uh, traditionally from Sauvignon Blanc uh, and Chenin Blanc. In this case, we have Sauvignon Blanc blended with Chardonnay. Uh, You don't often see those two grape varieties together, but there's quite a few winemakers in the Loire Valley that really like putting them together. So the first thing we can talk about is, is what are we talking about when we're talking about grape varieties. It's sort of the same thing that you have with different types of apples. When you go to the store, uh, you can buy a Macintosh apple, you can buy a Pink Lady apple, you can buy a Granny Smith apple. Um, All those are different apple species, and because of that, they're going to taste a little bit different from one another. We have the exact same thing happening with grapes. Over the course of thousands of years, uh, grapes have... Uh, evolved in different ways to deal with different climates. Some are better at dealing with really dry soils and some are better with dealing with really wet soils. Some can do better in hot climates or cold climates. Um, There's a bunch of different factors that you'd consider when deciding what grape variety to plant in your region. So the Loire Valley that we that we're talking about right now is quite cool and it's quite wet. So the grape varieties that you need to plant need to be able to ripen Uh, over the course of a shorter growing season and a cooler growing season. They need to be fairly resistant to things like um, different types of rots and molds because in these damp environments, you tend to have more disease pressure. And so, this is what you're deciding on. Not only that, but you want to decide on a flavor profile that you actually like. Sauvignon Blanc tends to have quite a herbaceous characteristic to it, uh, often described as green, um, having notes of green bell pepper, uh, sage, green tea, things along those lines, versus Chardonnay tends to be quite neutral. It doesn't have a really distinctive flavor. It's more famous for being uh, very subtle, Uh, you know, lots of yellow apple. Um, when fermented in in oak, you can really emphasize uh, a creamy quality or a nutty quality. Um, so these are things that you're deciding on when you're choosing a what what types of vines you would like to plant in your actual vineyard uh, and which types of wines you would like to make, but also deciding what you'd like to buy and what you'd like to drink. So, once you understand that Sauvignon Blanc can be made in a particular range of styles, it might help you decide, uh, you know, that you wanna drink those wines more often than not. Uh, In this case, Laurent is farming uh, organically and using a lot of biodynamic practices as well. He doesn't have a certification, um, but he's, again, farming in uh, way better than most people who do have a certification, in fact. Uh, certifications for things like organics and biodynamics are incredibly expensive. Um, they're also very restrictive Um in certain situations, you would want to deviate from the particular plan that the uh, that these advertising uh, slash regulating bodies um, would have for you, and so not subscribing to any particular ideology really helps you know him remain free, just in case something really drastic happens in the vineyard. But realistically, from most of the winemakers that I've talked to, um, if you're seeing something like you know heavy disease pressure, like rot, mold, uh, etc., in the vineyard. Um, by the time you see it, it's already too late. You should have sprayed already. Uh, so most organic and biodynamic producers who are uncertified are not just going to all of a sudden spray really harmful chemicals, um, even in a, in a bad vintage. Um, so he's uncertified. Uh, the reason why we think that uh, farming organically and biodynamically is really important uh, is because of a handful of reasons. One, there's the environmental impacts. And although studies have shown um, that when food crops with the intention of mass production are farmed organically, they're actually less environmentally friendly than uh, f- you know mass production food crops that are farmed conventionally. And this is because the yields are so much lower um, and in some cases, the, the actual um, pesticides, herbicides, fertilizer, all that sort of stuff, in some cases, uh, things that are approved for organic farming actually have a bigger environmental impact to produce them. So if you look at from a holistic approach, uh, you know, conventional farming is actually better environmentally speaking than organic farming. This is different when we talk about wine, because wine is not being, at least the wines that we like to drink, are not being produced at a commodity scale. These are small production. Uh, Whether they're farming conventionally or organically, they would end up with roughly the same yields. Uh, You know, we're talking somewhere between two and four tons per acre of grapes. Um, You're not going to, you know, for fine wine production, whether you're farming with synthetic pesticides and herbicides or not, um, you're not really farming over over this. You're not really getting five, six, seven tons per acre on really, really high quality wine. There are exceptions to that. Uh, You see places like Prosecco where they're able to push the yields quite high and still retain, um, you know, fairly good quality depending on what your goal is, um, what your flavor goal is, I suppose. Uh, And so for us, you know, when we look at the environmental impacts of a small winery that's focused on making um, high quality wine, uh, then it really is better for the environment to be farming this way. Not only that, but this is like a lot of other sort of technologies where um, at first it's not necessarily accomplishing its goal, but it basically opens up the opportunity for a vast amount of research and improvements to be made. And as we invest in these technologies and and learn more techniques for growing things organically, uh, it ends up being better and better. This is the same sort of thing that we're seeing with early adopters of electric cars. Sure, the batteries aren't really that great and we're still getting electricity from um, non-renewable sources, but ultimately the goal is that the technology will improve enough that we'll be able to do it? Somebody has to, you know, start. And uh, I think wine is the perfect place to to start making that transition. There's a ton of money in wine. Your end product sells for a lot more than something like a, you know, bag of apples or a bag of potatoes or something like that. And you know, you're not feeding the world with wine. Um, we did have a conversation with one of our friends a couple months ago. Uh, um, about the ideology of uh, wine being food wine being part of culture and in certain cases that's de- that's definitely true but for most of us around the world who are drinking wine uh, it's not uh, it's not an essential the same way that you know actual food is uh, as much as it's uh an emotional <laughs> and uh, aesthetic essential for me at least uh, you know i c- I would definitely survive on a desert, desert island without wine. Uh, I'd be very sad and my life would be less fulfilled, but either way. So this is why we, we focus on organics and biodynamics. And then the the other reason is that we believe that it improves quality. Um, again, research has been done into the nutrient value of organically versus conventionally farmed foods. And it shows that conventionally farmed foods are actually just as nutritious uh, as uh, organically farmed foods where you're seeing the difference is the potential harmful qualities of the pesticides and herbicides uh not only that but the detriment on the soil uh the detriment that it's causing via the pollution to make things like fertilizers etc but if you're looking at the actual food item and and whether or not it's more or less nutritious for you like has the same amount of uh you know calorie to um to you know vitamins and minerals ratio as organically farmed they're about the same, ultimately. Um, what we're looking at, though, is not that. What we're looking at is the ability of these wines to show terroir, so a sense of place, complexity, which is uh, the not only just like the quantity of different flavors in a particular wine, but also how they meld together. Um, and so these are the things that we're looking for. And based on recent research, uh, in organic and biodynamic vineyards, you have a lot more biodiversity in the actual soils, um, as well as actually floating around and on the grapes. And this ultimately leads to more complexity in the wine via, uh, mostly via the fermentation process uh, using the natural yeast, the natural you know, basically biome of the actual vineyard to do the fermentation, you're getting a lot more complexity. Um, There was a paper released and and there was a direct correlation between the amount of different species living in your soil. uh, So the health of your soil essentially, and the amount of aroma, uh, varying aroma and flavor compounds in the finished wine. So we just find that these wines taste better. Uh, so as much as it, it is about sort of the, the ethics of organic farming, it's also a qualitative decision for us, at least. Um, you know, before I was into natural wine, I you know, I still liked drinking wine. I was still drinking wine before I even knew natural wine was a thing. And if I you know, had a list of all the favorite wines that I had ever drank up until that point, um, they were mostly farmed organically, uh, almost all of them in fact. Uh, and they're almost all wild fermented and there's again that that this was before I knew any of these things uh, taking again the ethics out of it, taking even the knowledge of how these things were farmed out of it and I just tended to prefer those wines. And so when we were starting our wine importing agency, we just wrote down all the producers that you know that we had tasted over the course of the last however many years um, that we enjoyed and then it turned out that, they all happen to be natural wines. And so we started diving deeper and deeper and deeper into it uh, and realizing that we sort of aligned with these ideologies as well. So these are the reasons why we're really excited about about organics and biodynamics. Uh, Again, I can rant about it for an exceptionally long time, but uh, (laughs) at least that gives you some sort of idea. Um, The next thing that happens after you grow really, really good grapes is is you do fermentation, uh, which is Basically, the the magic that happens between uh, grape juice and wine. Uh, this is the the alchemy that takes place when you transform. You know, basically, essentially, like a sweet, fruity liquid um, that basically just tastes like sugar and acid. Uh, and it gets transformed into the wines that we all know and love now that are enormously complex um, and enormously more satisfying than than just grape juice. Uh, it's a lot easier to make grape juice than it is to make wine. So if grape juice was as compelling, uh, and I'm sure the alcohol also has something to do with it, but um, when we talk about fermentation, what we're trying to say is that yeast come in and consume the sugar that's in the grapes um, you know, at this point, we've crushed the grapes, so the the juice has been exposed to yeast that's either in the air, or if you're a conventional winery, you'd be adding yeast developed in a laboratory um, that can carry out fermentation. So those yeast are consuming the sugars in the grape juice, and they're converting it into Primarily two things. Uh, one is alcohol, and the other thing is CO2. So if you've ever been in a winery during harvest time, uh, you'll notice that it's quite heaty. Uh, there's, there's been, you know, plenty of times where I've been in a winery and felt pretty lightheaded from the amount of CO2 being expelled by by all these yeasts. Um, the other thing that these yeasts do is they convert some of the flavors that's found in grape juice into way more complex flavors. Um, this happens while they're metabolizing those sugars. So you get everything from uh, you know, esters, so like fruity qualities. Um, you can get things like mercaptans, which are more sort of herbal earthy qualities. Uh, you get thiols, which can be uh, Again, things like like grapefruit, for instance, uh, can fall under that category depending on how you're looking at it. Um, You get uh, a ton of complexity out of these. You get aldehydes, you get volatile sulfur compounds, basically all these things that make wine so much more than grape juice is coming from the yeast. 60% of the actual flavor of a wine comes from the yeast that did the fermentation. Uh, So this means that you know, other than grape variety, so choosing which grape variety you want to use. Uh, obviously, these grapes will have their inherent qualities, like we talked about before, with Sauvignon Blanc being herbaceous, Chardonnay being a little bit more neutral. Um, the most important thing, though, is, is going to be the yeast. And so, with the producers that we work with, they try and establish a really uh, healthy, ecosystem in their actual vineyard. And this is basically going to promote, uh, you know, strong, resilient and diverse yeast populations that, you know, once the grapes are actually crushed and the juice is exposed and fermentation starts, uh, those yeast will be healthy enough to carry it right through to wine. This is why wild fermentation is a little more um, unpredictable is because you're not using a yeast that's been developed in a laboratory to ferment under any given condition, regardless of what's in the rest of the wine. Um, yeast, are at least the wild yeast, are very particular about what they, what environments they like, what temperatures they like, um, the amount of acidity that they can handle, the amount of sugar that they can handle, um, the amount of nutrients that they need. So in the wine itself, uh, or in the grape juice I guess at this point during the fermentation, um, you have different nutrients that have been uptaken by the by the vine themselves. And if the grape juice doesn't have the right amount of nutrients. The fermentation is gonna, you know, struggle. The yeast basically don't have everything they need. I don't know if you've ever tried to do, you know, hard labor after, uh, after skipping lunch, but it's sort of the same thing. If you don't provide the, you know, provide the grapes or provide the yeast with everything they need, they're gonna struggle the same way that we would. Um, the ways of getting those nutrients into the grapes for organic farmers and biodynamic farmers that are doing wild fermentation, the way that we're talking about uh, so natural winemakers, what they're trying to do is they're trying to um, start in the actual vineyard. So they're trying to grow grapes that already have those nutrients in them by creating a balanced ecosystem, by creating balanced soils um, that aren't too acidic, that aren't too um you know, aren't too porous, but still retain a proper amount of water, um, have the right nutrient balance. So making sure that you have enough nitrogen in the soil. Um, they're doing all these things in the actual vineyard via things like cover crops, um, and uh and their compost regime uh what types of fertilizers they're using whether it be you know cow manure or you can use things like bat guano uh you know basically all the animals that poop are pretty uh pretty amazing for the vineyard um so that's how they're doing it versus a conventional farmer uh what they're doing is they're adjusting it in the winery so they'd add you know, some sort of uh, yeast nutrient blend to it. So this could be something like uh, DAP, so diammonium phosphate. Um, you could you know, basically just add that to your wine. And it, it acts as it's kind of like adding like fish food. Uh, you know, you're just in, instead of uh, <laughs> natural wine would be more like, you know, fish living in the wild, and they they find their own food because the ecosystem's well balanced versus uh, conventional winemaking, the yeast are, are more like fish in a fish tank, where, you know, unless you have that human intervention, uh, nothing would happen. So you're adding the the yeast food or the fish food to the to the tank. Um, so this is how they're, they're carrying out fermentation, uh, so you can kind of see the differences. Uh, where the producers that we work with, they look back to the vineyard for any sort of shortcomings uh, of the actual grapes themselves. Um, conventional winemakers would be like, hey, how can I fix this? Um, and that's usually going to be via some sort of additives uh, to, to help things along. Um, so digressing a little bit to the wine here. Uh, this is from Laurent Sayard again. Uh, this wine is absolutely amazing to me. This is such a pure example of, of everything we love in wine. Um, often natural wine uh, enthusiasts are really excited about the weirdest flavors. They want stuff that's really esoteric, uh, stuff that's completely different than anything that they've ever had before. And sometimes, you know, for us, that's really exciting as well, but sometimes I want a classic. And this for me is, is about as classic classic as it gets. It's the perfect balance of that Sauvignon Blanc uh, sort of gently herbal characteristic, ripe fruits, um, but then also the the subtleness and the smoothness uh, of Chardonnay Um, This is obviously still very bright and fresh, very poised, very elegant, but at the same time it's not lacking flavor It's uh, sitting at 13% alcohol um, So it's actually got some richness, some body uh, And these are all things that we really like uh, in this particular wine It's conveniently named Lucky You and we we definitely feel lucky every time we get to drink it We're one of only a handful of places in the world that get uh, Any of Laurent's wines and we've been working with them for five years now So it's super cool to have seen the evolution Evolution of his wines over the course of you know quite a few years now. Uh, the second wine that we're going to talk about today is from Domaine de la Uh This winery is about a two-hour drive away from where Laurent Saillard is, uh, so if you ever happen to be in the area, in particular in Tours, uh, the town of Tours in in the Loire Valley in France, it's a really good hub uh, to travel to all these different vineyards sort of in this the same area. Um, so if you drive you know about an hour and a half south of, of Tours, um, you'll get to Domaine de la Guerilliere, which is on an isolated hillside uh, near the town of Razine. Um, uh, this vineyard has been farmed biodynamically since 1991, so uh, as long as I've been alive, which is pretty impressive. Um, biodynamics is definitely becoming more of, more of a trend, and as more people know about it, more people are adopting the ideology. Uh, but back then, in 1991, you know, th- this was one of the few places that was actually farming this particular way. Uh, this was definitely in the chemical era of of winemaking. Um, this wine is made from Chenin Blanc, so the other classic grape variety of this region. We talked about it before, being Sauvignon Blanc, Chenin Blanc, maybe being the most dominant. Um, although we have Melon de Bourgogne uh, closer to the coast. Um, But I I would say that Chenin Blanc is definitely the most famous and the most long-lived. The wines from Chenin Blanc tend to to go for a really long time. Um, Unlike, you know, Sauvignon Blanc is usually not known for its aging potential. Um, Versus Chenin Blanc, again, I've had bottles that are are 50 years old, that are fresh and vibrant, uh, obviously showing some evolution. Um, tons of complexity from that aging, but it's one of the few wines that can actually go that long. I obviously need to be drinking wine as well. This is the problem with not having a guest, is that I don't get uh, get breaks in speaking. Um, so what makes a wine actually age? And would you want to age a particular bottle of wine? Uh, we include our aging recommendations um, in, in the write-up that we have uh, for wine club members every month. And everything that we include in the month can be consumed now. Uh, they don't need to be aged. So why would you age a wine? And what's required for a wine to age? So the reasons why you'd want to age a wine is to to show flavor development. So again, you think of the difference between like a fresh apple versus a dried apple versus maybe an apple that's been made into apple pie. Uh, you're seeing the progression uh, of of sort of an apple like heading towards entropy, uh, <laughs> to, towards, you know, sort of becoming one with the universe, I suppose. And so that fresh apple is very uh, simple flavor. It's just bright, very fresh, very juicy versus that dried apple. Again, you're getting more umami, more savory characteristics. And then apple pie, again, this is like the, the end of the evolution. And so with the same sort of thing is happening with with wines. Um, when you first get a wine like a you know a fresh Pinot Grigio right off the bat, um, you're getting all these, you know, fresh citrus notes, floral characteristics maybe, and then not much beyond that. As the wine ages a little bit, some of those flavor molecules that are quite delicate actually start breaking down um, or recombining into new flavors that are a little bit more complex, uh, but definitely less fresh. So those flavors can break down and start creating flavors like honey. Um, Those floral characteristics can break down to more of an earthy, vegetative quality. You can get notes like forest floor, you can get things like uh, truffles or different types of mushrooms. Um, The fruity characteristics that are the most delicate start to break down as well. And so you'll find with these older wines, instead of having those fresh fruit characteristics, you'll get more dried fruit characteristics uh, and softer fruit characteristics. The other thing that can happen is that the structure will actually change. So the structural elements that we talk about with wine um, are basically the different different things you can actually taste, not smell, but taste. So things like acidity, things like tannin, which we kind of group into bitterness, um, things like sweetness. Uh, as a wine ages, those things tend to, to mellow out a little bit, um, which leads nicely into what sort of things a wine actually needs to age. So a wine needs intensity of flavor. Um, Wines that are quite neutral, with a handful of exceptions, uh, tend to not age very well because there's nothing to age. There's no flavors to develop. So something like that Pinot Grigio that I just talked about that's just, you know, maybe citrus and a little bit floral and that's about it, that's not really gonna turn into anything pleasing. There's not enough flavor to actually age. And then you wanna look at, again, these structural elements, so things like acidity. Uh, Think of acidity as a preservative, the same way that you have, you know, like pickles in the fridge or or sauerkraut. Um, Those acidic, uh, that that acidity basically prevents things like bacteria and and prevents the wine from breaking down. Um, The lower the pH, so which tends to be the the higher the actual acidity in the actual wine, uh, the less the wine will actually oxidize. it prevents it from from basically, you know, kind of turning brown the same way that, again, an apple would when you cut it open and leave it on the counter. And so having wines with high acidity, which is basically the entirety of our portfolio, because we're uh, big fans of, of wines with freshness and brightness, uh, that'll help a wine age. Tannin, so that bitterness, um, that will also help the wine age uh, as that tannin gets older, it starts to break down and that's why you end up with sediment in the wine is that uh, tannins and anthocyanins um, Break down so anthocyanin being the coloring compound in, in the wine They break down and end up sinking to the bottom of the wine. So a red wine that's older will actually be lighter in color um, They actually get more delicate as they age less tannic smoother often uh, Because it has less of that bitterness and um, so, and then things like sweetness. Sweetness is obviously a really great preserver. That's why we have things like you know, candied flower petals and, and, and different types of candied things that last way longer than the actual thing themselves. Sugar is an amazing preservative. Uh, and so if wines have high levels of any of these things yet are still in balance and have tons of flavor, they might be good potential candidates for aging. Um, often it's best just to re- you know, refer to an expert that's been lucky enough to taste a ton of wines and see how they progress over the years. Um, but if a wine is just you know, bright, fresh, fruity, doesn't have a ton of intensity, it's probably not gonna be the perfect wine to age. Uh, in this case, I'd say that the first two wines that we have, the two whites, are actually both really great candidates for aging because they have tons of freshness, um, again, higher acidity levels, and tons of flavor. Uh, and then, if again, we look historically, things like Chardonnay, uh, which is included in the first wine, Lucky You, uh, and things like Chenin Blanc have a, a historic record of being really great age-worthy wines. Uh, so yeah, I'd say that this would definitely be a, a great candidate for aging. Uh, so this particular vineyard is being farmed biodynamically. Um, it's this holistic approach to, to farming that, again, we think yields... Uh, wines with tons of complexity, as well as being environmentally friendly at the same time. Uh, This wine is made um, like literally adjacent to the actual vineyard in a cellar that's hundreds of years old. They're fermenting this um, in a variety of different vessels, but uh, the thing that they're known for is fermenting in concrete. So depending on what type of vessel you're fermenting in, you can end up with different flavors in the final wine. Uh, With concrete, it tends to be a little bit porous, so it allows a small amount of oxygen into the wine during fermentation. Yeast really like oxygen, so it helps the fermentation be really um, effective from quite quickly. Um, these concrete tanks have quite thick walls, so it helps the wine stay a really stable temperature—not huge temperature fluctuations necessarily. Uh, and these are quite large vessels, so it means that as the, you know, as the yeast settles to the bottom, um, it's not ca- in contact with the wine anymore. So you're not getting a ton of flavor from the actual yeast. Uh, the surface area of, of the bottom of the tank to the rest of the liquid basically prevents it from being particularly yeasty. Um, Versus if you age, you know, Chardonnay in a barrel with a ton of uh, yeast and you stir up that yeast quite often, you're gonna get a lot more of that yeasty characteristic uh, or leesy kind of creaminess. Um, You'll see this a lot in places like Burgundy where Chardonnay is is quite famous, Um, or even in places like California. California Chardonnay, you know, tends to be aged with a lot of yeast. And um, again, you're getting all those delicious flavors from it, but in this case, Again, not a ton of yeast characteristic, uh, you know, hanging on. Um, this wine for me is quintessential Chenin Blanc. It has that perfect combination of really ripe fruit. Um, you know, we're, we're getting sort of like quince here. We're getting um, almost some tropical characteristics. Uh, I get like a hint of pineapple or papaya, something kind of in that range. Um, but then also this really mineral quality. It's, uh, it's very famous for being kind of steely or wooly or flinty. And I think this wine has sort of all three of those things in, in equal measure. Uh, as this wine ages, that'll just develop into, again, a beautiful like honeyed truffle kind of characteristic. Uh, something that I think we would all very much enjoy. Um as far as serving temperature on these two wines, um again, we get asked quite often about what you know, how should I be drinking these? And for me, both these wines definitely like a little bit of oxygen. So, um if you if you did feel like decanting them, they they both do fine with that. And then I think basically just uh just above fr- fridge temperature seems pretty much perfect. Um you know, take it out of the fridge 15 minutes before you plan on drinking it uh, and then start drinking and allow it to warm up as you're drinking it. Uh, Flavors become more volatile at warmer temperatures, uh, which means that the wine will taste different depending on how warm you're drinking it. So I really like starting quite cool, um, tasting it, sort of getting an idea for, for certain flavor profiles and then as it warms up it'll change and then I'll get a more complete picture of what the wine actually tastes like. Um, so I'd say for the first two wines, again, take it out of the fridge for 15 to 20 minutes, um, you know, decant it if uh, if you did feel like, uh, you know, adding a little bit of oxygen, which will really, again, wake the wine up a little bit, you know, allow the flavors to escape a little bit easier, uh, and then drink it sort of from there on out, you know, watching it, watching it warm up. Uh, the final wine that we have today is not imported by us. It's been a little while since we've included a wine from another importing agency, and uh, Gabriella helped us out this month and uh, and got us a really, really delicious wine to include. Um, so, this is imported by Garno Block, uh, our friend Gabriella up in Edmonton. Um, this is Domaine du Seigneur, uh, and this is the Gout du Seigneur. Um, so their entry-level red blend. They're in the Rhone Valley in France. So uh, again, all, all three wines today coming from France, we thought it'd be, uh, you know, it's been a while since we've done a, a single country. So I thought that might be fun. And especially since we're getting a little more, maybe educational this month, it, uh, it makes sense to, you know, hone in on one place. Um, so the Rhone Valley, quite a bit warmer than the last region that we were talking about. The Loire Valley being quite cool um, and quite damp. The Rhone Valley is almost the exact opposite. It's Mediterranean climate, uh, so quite hot. Um, you know, still quite cool winters, but definitely, definitely really warm uh, during the summer and quite dry comparatively. The soils here are also entirely different. So for the first two wines, we had a combination of uh, like Silex, limestone things like that versus in the Rhone Valley um, in this area in particular you have things like uh, galette uh, so basically just stones Um, you also have a lot of sand in the southern Rhone Valley uh, and these things all contribute to the warmth of this area if you have soils that drain quite quickly um, it tends to make the the area feel quite warm as opposed to the dampness of the the Loire Valley This wine is made uh, from a handful of different grapes. Um, I really like blends. Uh, In this case, this is Syrah and Grenache, which is, again, the classic grape varieties of the Southern Rhone. Um, Blends make a lot of sense because you can sort of counteract some of the the qualities of each individual grape. Uh, Grenache tends to be quite soft, quite full embodied, uh, quite high in alcohol um just quite juicy and playful and fun uh there are definitely examples that are more sturdy and and more structured but it tends to lack tannin a little bit um you know it, it can definitely lack acidity uh provided it's grown in a really hot site um but when you blend it with syrah which tends to have higher levels of tannin um be a more reductive grape variety versus uh Versus Grenache tends to be quite oxidative. Um, By blending the two together, they they get along really, really nicely. Uh, They seem to counteract each other in this beautiful way. There's a savoriness to Syrah, so it balances some of the overtly fruity qualities uh, of Grenache, Um, and it's just a style I really like. So all around the the Rhone Valley, you see these blends of grapes. Um, You'll often hear them called Rhone blends, even if they're not made in the Rhone Valley. Uh, You'll see it in in Australia, often called GSM's, uh, meaning Grenache, Syrah, and Mouvedre. Um, But you can also see Rhone blends from uh, the Okanagan and from California. So it's a very popular style. Basically, you're blending any red uh, grapes that are indigenous to the Rhone Valley. Uh, Although technically speaking, a Grenache is originally from uh, from Spain, but they sort of claimed it as their own in in uh, the Rhone Valley there. Uh, so this is also being fermented in concrete. Uh, again, we really like concrete fermentation. It tends to provide a lot of freshness, a lot of vibrancy. You'll hear me use those words quite a bit. Um, I find that freshness is essential to wine. Wine is a beverage uh it's something that you're drinking and uh, for those of you who, who have drank anything that's uh that's not refreshing it's, it's very taxing uh it's like you know you you wouldn't necessarily want to uh have uh you know a milkshake with every meal uh sometimes you need something that's bright and fresh and lively and, and gonna you know uplift you in some sort of way and for me that drinkability that that energizing quality Uh, a lot of that comes from bright acidity um, and it comes from these lower extraction levels so the wine's not being super dense and and super packed and you know sweet or or, you know those sort of styles Um, again we like drinkability we like you know i think we included on the first write-up on our website uh, was something along the lines of you know if we wouldn't drink an entire bottle of it we're not really interested in importing it uh, and that remains true to this day. Everything that we import is, is something that we'd want to drink, you know, an entire bottle of. Uh, so we definitely have, you know, a preferred style. Um, trying to think of what other things we should we should cover in this uh, sort of, you know, dispelling some, some things about the wine world and, and understanding a little bit. Uh, I suppose it might be a fun time to talk about how this wine actually gets to us. Um, just because of all the the interesting things that we're going through with COVID right now and, and shipping, um, basically what normally happens, and we, we had this in an Instagram post a couple days ago, but to, to reiterate it here, um, normally we, you know, for for sake of argument, we'll take one example. But normally we order wine in, in January. Uh, it takes uh, you know two to three months to get here from Europe. Um, so, you know, we'd sort of be getting it around March. Um, then it usually takes us maybe two months to, to sell that wine, and then we can order all over again. So sort of by May or June, uh, we, can, we can order, we've recouped all of our cost. hopefully made a, enough profit to actually pay our salaries, and then we order all over again. Um, with a lot of our producers, we pay up front. So that means that we're paying for that wine in January uh, and really only recoup. Cooping that cost by uh, May or June. Um, versus now, uh, what's often happening is uh, because of the massive shipping delays all over the world, uh, we're seeing a little bit of a pinch. Uh, we're ordering wine and paying for it in January, and it's still not here yet. So we're going to be getting some of our shipments that we that we paid for months and months and months ago um, at the end of May, so like in June, and then we can we can think that it'll take us another two months to sell those wines, which means that they're not going to be sold until you know July, August potentially, uh, and then we'll be reordering. But those wines will also take an extra two to three months to show up, which means that they won't even be here in time for the Christmas rush. So instead of getting three order periods in a year, all of which we have the money to do because we've already sold the wine, we're basically getting two order periods and not being able to recoup any of those costs in between. So basically the uh, the slowdown in the global supply chain is really messing us up. Um, but that's ultimately how these wines are getting here right now. And I know Gabrielle is, is going through the same thing that that we are. So it's, uh, it's interesting to think about again, how this is affecting everybody, not only that, but there is a strike at the port in Montreal, which means that all of our wines that are here, that have finally made it here, are actually stuck in Montreal currently because none of it's being loaded um, or unloaded from uh, the the cargo ships and then uh, put on rail over to Alberta. So even if our wine is, is almost here, uh, a lot of it is just floating off the coast right now and uh, we might be out another month two months, who knows how long it's going to take. And this has actually pushed things back in Europe because there's no point in sending wine uh, when those ships are just going to be sitting, you know, out in the ocean somewhere for an indefinite amount of time. So uh, they're even pushing back, uh, actually picking up the wine. So it means that we're going to have to order now uh, for Christmas, although we have not recouped any of the costs from earlier this year. Uh, So again, just providing a little bit of insight into you know some of the i don't know some of the difficulties of of importing wine into uh into alberta during a pandemic but you know regardless we'll figure it out we we always do so um yeah, I feel like that's pretty much all I have to say for today. Uh, we'll keep it a little bit shorter this time. I feel like the podcasts have been getting pretty long, uh, although people do like the long podcasts. So we'll keep it uh, short and sweet. If anybody has any questions or anything you'd like me to cover in the next podcast, feel free to send me an email. Uh, it's Eric E-R-I-K, at... JuiceImports.com. definitely check us out on instagram at juice imports you can send us a dm on there if you have any questions but email is definitely better Um, and yeah check around on the website as well we have tons of information about each of these producers as well as a guide to tasting wine um you know a guide to the okanagan all these different things so definitely go click around on our website it always helps us out a ton uh thanks so much for listening we look forward to chatting with you again soon bye